This broadcast is coming to you from unceded Gadigal land. I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here on your radio, streaming online, or on the podcast. This is Out of the Box. I sit down with one guest each week and talk about the songs and stories that have defined who they are. Today's guest might have provoked your thoughts before and might very well be here to do it again. Chaz Lichardello is a comedian, writer, TV host and member of The Chaser. He is also the mind behind the series Planet America, which we will get to later in the show. But right now, we're here to talk about the big moments that have made up his life and the songs that were playing in the background. Thanks for jumping on the show today, Chaz. No problems. Hopefully I won't be too provocative. I could deal without the social media grief, just for once. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, before we get to social media grief, this story does start off in Maroubra. What was your family doing there? My parents, very in a very traditional Italian way, built our house, physically built our house in Maroubra on a vacant lot. And uh, my dad was a real estate agent there in Maroubra and he worked for my mum's family, also very traditional Italian, working in the family business. And then I came along and uh, it's fair to say I was a little bit different than what they were expecting. Like for once, like one thing, I didn't spend much time in that home built in Maroubra. I spent most of my time in hospital for the first six, seven years of my life, which was on one hand probably pleasant for them, but on the other hand probably not. (laughs) Why were you spending that much time in hospital? I had a combination of both croup, chronic croup, and also an immune system problem so that when I got sick, I got very sick. So essentially, if I even got a cold, I would end up in hospital and I would stay there until I was absolutely better because they couldn't risk me getting sick again. So for that reason, I was in and out of hospital a lot. And uh, so, in fact, to the point where I actually, at one point in time, until I was about about seven-ish, eight-ish, I had a half American accent because I was watching so much TV and was in isolation and I kind of learned to speak from my television. So it's... uh, yeah, which is explains a lot, I think, about me, both in terms of my American obsession and also my bizarre obsession with television. When I think back on the later years, like I'm talking like six or seven, when I was in hospital there, I was almost always in a, in a room by myself. I, while I don't remember this, I've been told that when I was like a very young, I used to just sing all the time and the and the nurses found it really cute and so they would um especially given that i was in there for respiratory problems what the hell was i doing singing but anyway uh, apparently they used to give me mixtapes they they used to bring mixtapes all the time and so uh i would just sit there singing late 70s early 80s anthems to them <laughs> at all times so i guess if you define Lonely as not having a lot of friends. That was certainly the case. When I was at school, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 
in constant trouble and didn't get along with anyone. I just couldn't relate to kids my age. If I combine that with the fact that I had a massive chip on my shoulder and I just could not talk to people, all I did was read and I just didn't speak to people at all and didn't know how to react to people. It wasn't a great combination. And I kind of, it drove me to the point where I saw, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I had a crossroads in year four. <laughs> Most people have it when they're 45. Like a midlife crisis. Yeah, I had a mid-primary school crisis <laughs> where I just, I remember very vividly on New Year's Eve between 1986 and 87, just lying up in bed saying, I'm going to take this opportunity to think about my life because it is not going where I want. And I hate life. I hate my parents. I hate everyone at school. I hate everything. There's nothing to live for which is a pretty dark thought to have when you're nine. It's dark, but it's also quite remarkable that you've got that maturity and presence of mind to make that decision. Look, you might, you might think of it as, as maturity, and in some ways I guess I was mature because I was reading a lot of books. from. As I, I was reading constantly. I was reading adult books. But at the same time, I lashed out at people in an extremely un- immature fashion. But, uh, yeah, I... What I would say is it may be a mark of maturity. I would say it's probably more a mark of another factor of my life, which is a tendency to be spectrum-esque. I've never been diagnosed officially, but the child psychologist did say to my, my parents, I was this close to being regarded as autistic. At that point in time, there was nothing but autism. There was no spectrum. There was no Asperger's. There was nothing like that. It was just autism or nothing. And they, they suggested I was extremely close to being regarded as autistic. And I think these days I would be diagnosed as probably being on the spectrum. And it just, it just, it just means that one of, one of the weird things about me is I don't really access emotions very well. I just, I'm just I do this weird hyper-rational thing where I dissociate from, from my own self and sit down and analyse. And I was doing that then. That's what I was doing then. And I just sat down and said, yeah, I want to change everything. And I decided to build it from the bottom up. I intentionally picked a bunch of books to read like uh, instructional books. Like when I say instructional, I don't mean I don't mean self help books. I mean books about about teenagers who are struggling as an instruction book. I figured they would they would give me things to experiment with, the tactics to use, and I did. I experimented them one by one. Sometimes they didn't work. Sometimes they did. And if they worked, I'd keep them. And I kept on trying to sort of reinvent myself through year five and year six, and it actually worked. I actually did sort of rebuild my entire life with my parents and and at school and. And it's by the time I got to your high school, I was flying. It was really good. Yeah, it's such a methodical approach to <laughs> reshaping who you are. When you're in this <laughs> transitional period of your life, were you ever looking forward and thinking about what you might want to be when you grow up? Absolutely. I've always, always been looking forward. When I was before the before the transitional period, I used to. This is an indication of just how screwed up I was. I just for whatever. I guess I was, guess this was the 1980s. But when I thought to myself, all I wanted to be was just rich. <laughs> that was it. And so, I, all I, and so I decided at that point in time, I wanted to be a merchant banker because I heard that that was the way to become really rich really easily. And that was, that was what I was like before the transition. But then when I went through this sort of transition and I just completely reevaluated everything, I decided I didn't care about money at all. And all I really wanted to do was to inform people and entertain people, essentially. And you started doing that in high school, didn't you? I did. I did. I did. Well, I decided at that point in time that they, that it was going to be either teaching, journalism or writing. Mm. At that point in time, I knew it was going to be one of those three. 
And so I, and so I started to do both journalism, not teaching, <laughs> not, a, not a 10, uh, but journalism and writing. I worked at the school newspaper and I wrote serious stuff and I also wrote comedy. And I also, believe it or not, this was, as I said, a pretty rich school. We had our own school TV channel. So I was making TV shows in high school. And I, was, and I knew that was shit. They were terrible. Everything was terrible. But I also knew, once again, being methodical, that the only way you get good is by practicing. And so I just, I just practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. And I figured eventually, I figured I had at least till year 12 to get good. So you might as well practice as long as you, as long as you can. And that's what I did. I produced so much shit. <laughs> and in a few minutes' time, I do want to get to the stuff that you ended up producing, which hopefully isn't shit. (laughs) But before that, I want to jump into a song. We're going to go back to Chaz in the hospital, Chaz Mm. singing to the nurses. What's the first song you've chosen for today? I used to love so much Chikatita by ABBA. Not the most popular ABBA song, but in my world, it was number one. Amazing. It's ABBA on FBI Radio 94 by Ava on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now and out of the box, I'm joined by Chaz Lichardello. Chaz, you were saying before you had dreams of being maybe a writer or maybe a teacher. Let's go to the writing, which is where you have ended up. How were you making those dreams happen when you finished school? Well, I knew even in year 12, I knew I wasn't good enough. It was very, very clear. And so I figured I had to go to uni for two reasons. Number one, to buy me three to five years to get better and number two to give me a backup when I inevitably failed in this career so I I figured that I I end up doing science law at uni to give me a five years that's the important bit but also to give me uh, qualifications I could be a teacher a science teacher or use the law to become a journalist is there a reason that you didn't choose to study writing or journalism well I figured at that point in time that 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 doing a course in writing wasn't really going to help me as much as just practicing. And I, I already had a lot of experience at this point in time in learning through trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't and applying it. I did it with my own personality, like I said before, but I also did it with a bunch of other stuff. That's just my nature. I, I do like to trial and error everything. So I personally didn't rate listening to a teacher telling me what to do. I just wanted to experience myself and learn on, on the job. So that was that. And secondly, I just didn't think I was going to be a writer. I wanted to be, but I just didn't think the chances were very high because everyone wants to do this kind of stuff. Everyone wants to do TV and then they don't. So why would I be any different? So I was more concentrating on the backups as much as anything. I, was, I assumed I was going to end up being a journalist and that's why I did, did law. Why I didn't do media? Because I figured if I go for a job with the Herald and someone's got a media degree and I've got a law degree, they're going to hire me. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> I, know, I know what society's like. <laughs> a... And during that time, you were doing a bit of writing with the Eastern Herald, weren't you? I, I was. A, a local newspaper. I was the editor of the, of the local paper. Uh, it was a... It, I wouldn't say it was 
it was the highest uh, form of journalism, but it gave me a lot of practice writing. It, it, I, I saw on the, on the floor what, running a, what the issues are with running a newspaper. Clearly, this was not going to be anything like a real newspaper, but I figured that the issues that apply and the, the challenges that you face at the lower level are probably similar to the challenges you face at the higher level, just on a different scale. So I figured that that was good experience. Uh, I don't know, because I didn't end up becoming a journalist. Did you get paid for that job at the Eastern Herald? Look, it was, it was, <laughs> I was supposed to get paid, but they were struggling so hard, I didn't actually cash the checks, which when my dad found out, oh my God, he went absolutely nuts. Like, <laughs> he couldn't believe I hadn't, ca- but I, like I said, I'd gone through this weird transition and it shows how far I'd, I'd, I'd travelled that I just didn't care about money at all. I had enough anyway because I didn't spend money. I figured in, in an earlier part of my development, I discovered that, that you don't need money if you don't spend money. <laughs> and, uh, so I, and so I just never spent anything. And I always was one of the richest, richest, richest kids in the school. Oh, not the school, in my, in my peer group because I, I just didn't spend money. I worked, but I didn't spend any of it. And... Uh, and that, that and so it was the same at uni. And so I didn't really care about the money. I just went, I was doing it for the experience and I felt sorry for them. So I didn't cash a check. That's a really amazing attitude to have towards your work, though. Mm-hmm. You've put the sake of journalism above your wealth and it is a recurring theme in your life, which we'll come back to it is, later. It is. <laughs> it is. It, it, it's an indication of how desperate I was and how, how far I was willing to go and how I just didn't care about money at all if it would put me in a place where I could advance my career, which is all I cared about. Mm, and, and going above and beyond and doing all this extra work becomes a recurring theme in your life as well, especially in the context of The Chaser. Let, let's go to the start of The Chaser. Where were you in life when you met the blokes who would end up becoming part of this media entity? <laughs> well, we, we all went to the same uni together. I was a bit younger than them. Uh, I was a couple of years below them, but we all went to the same uni. I knew of them because they were all what we call prominent university identities, which is they all did all the comedy stuff, the debating, the theatre sports, stand-up, all that kind of stuff. The reviews, which I did a lot of. I did a lot of practising in, in the Law Review, which is like a comedy stage show at uni. They, they did all that kind of stuff. And to be honest, I didn't rate them at all. Not None of them. I didn't rate them. <laughs> These guys, I mean, I thought they were okay at comedy, but, but, the, but the, th- the main thing that stood out for me was they were exactly the kind of guys who would sit around on the veranda at the uni cafeteria telling jokes to each other and, and make, using crack, making cracks really loudly and then laughing really obnoxiously at each other. And I just thought, oh, what poses? I, I just didn't like those kinds of people at all. And so I didn't want anything to do with them. Then they formed The Chaser and one of them was my mate, Dominic Knight, who was, yeah, he was actually my friend as opposed to the other guys. Um, and he tried to get me involved because I was into pop culture and I was into TV and stuff like that. And none of them were really into that stuff. And they just wanted an entertainment writer. I did one or two articles and then I sort of drifted out because I just didn't like them at all. But then um, Andrew Denton uh, got into the newspaper. This is after uni now. This is uh, the year after uni. He got into the newspaper. This is when I was at the Eastern Herald. He got in, into the, the paper and he arranged for them to have a show on Triple M on Sunday nights in Sydney. And, yeah, you know, it wasn't high rating or anything. It was just it was a pretty lo-fi spot, but still a spot. And then and they, and through Dom, basically begged me to join them for the radio show because they said, look, 
We don't know TV. We don't know music. We don't know sport. That's all you talk about on Triple M. We can't do political jokes on Triple M. We need someone who can do gags about other stuff. And that's what you do. So why don't you get involved? And I thought, oh, might as well exploit them. Sure. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, so I joined. And then when I joined, I felt so guilty about the fact I jumped in at the high end. Like they'd give me this ride. I then thought, oh, the least I should do is start writing for their paper properly and so then I got involved started writing the paper and then I got into it and I started writing more and more political articles and before I knew it I thought actually these guys are really nice I really like them <laughs> I was completely wrong and then I became a, like a like yeah a proper member of the group and uh yeah you know the rest let's jump into a song now what would you like to mm. play next I've just told you what was basically the ending part of the transition period of my life which started with that weird new year's eve <laughs> between 1986 and 1987. It was a, it was, it was a two-year transition and then it continued on from there. And what I was listening to on that night on the radio, I still remember vividly, was In Your Wildest Dreams by Moody Blues, which was a song I loved and it stayed with me ever since that night. So why don't we make it stay with everyone else as well? It's the Moody Blues on FBI Radio 94.5. <laughs> the song's called Your Wildest Dreams. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull and Chaz Lichardello. Once upon a time, once when you Your Wildest Dreams, it was the Moody Blues on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio and right now I am joined by Chaz Lichardello of The Chaser. Just before we were talking about The Chaser almost as a faceless entity. You had the newspaper, you had the program on Triple M. Let's jump to where your faces graced our TV screens. In 2001 you made your debut with The Chaser Decides. What was that? That was a four-episode series with uh on based on the election of 2001 which once again andrew denton wasn't just happy with making us giving us a radio slot he also gave us a tv slot as well he essentially was negotiating with the abc about enough rope at that point in time to come back and he made a part of a condition of his return that they would give us a chance which was very nice of him and uh yeah and that was it it was a terrible show um it was uh, but yeah it, we showed some raw potential, apparently, <laughs> and it, uh, it was enough to give us another show in 2002, which was CNN. Uh, it was, yeah, what was CNN? It was, like a, it, was, it was a kind of a piss take of cable news, and in hindsight, I wish we'd come up with that idea five years later, because at the time we did it, cable news wasn't as well known as it was to come, and I also feel like we weren't as good writers in 2002 as we were come 2007, 2008. I wish we'd made it after The War and Everything because you know, it had its high points, but, man, it had its low points as well. It really took us, I think, until 2004, 2005 for us really to become the, the fully crafted professional writers. Like, we lent on Andrew Denton a lot in those early years, to be honest. And also Chris. Chris was, was, did a lot of the writing in 2001 and 2002. Not... I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Like it wasn't wasn't more than say 
say, 40% of the show. But when there's a group of six people and one of them's running 40% of the show, that's, that's disproportionate. Like Chris was definitely the first of us to develop as a writer and then the rest of us came behind. You seem to be really critical of a lot of the things you've made, Chaz. <laughs> Is that the way you feel about the war on everything? To be honest, I hated the war on everything. <laughs> so, yes. Look, I'm generally quite self-critical, to be, to be fair. It drives me. One of the things that drives me as a as a performer and as a writer is a complete disdain for everything I produce and a desire to make the next thing better. Uh, so there is a bit of that. But on top of that, the war on everything I hated for a number of reasons. I hated the fact that so many sketches didn't have punchlines, for one. <laughs> they really didn't. But the, I also, I mean, it really wasn't, often it wasn't my kind of comedy either. Um, but the most important thing was I just hated the experience because I was, my job as someone who wasn't as smooth as, say, Craig or Jules, uh, wasn't as good a performer as, say, Andrew, my job was to do the stuff that no one else wanted to do because I was determined enough to do it. And even though I was prepared to do it, I was prepared to do whatever it took, whether it was get nude or dress up in some uncomfortable costume or, or confront people in an extreme humiliating fashion um, even though I was prepared to do that I still hated it and so it was actually a, it was actually a physically unpleasant process to make the show but at the same time I'm obviously grateful it made my career. That's really interesting that you're saying that you didn't enjoy doing that because leading up to this interview I've told a few of my friends I'm interviewing one of the guys from The Chaser I'm interviewing Chaz and they're like, oh, he's the guy that did all the stunts. Yeah. Like, he's the guy that did all the hectic stuff. Yeah. And I guess that kind of comes with the assumption that you were the guy that wanted to do those things. Well, the other guy's prepared to do those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. jump into those stunts. Some of them are quite notorious. Sure. sure. I feel like some of the people listening to this might be younger than this era of television. So why don't you first walk us through what the chaser were doing and what what the apex stunt was okay well the apex came at our the apex conference came at our absolute peak which was in 2000 in 2006 we'd been on like a friday night and this weird ro- roving time slot it wasn't even a steady time slot but we raid quite well and then in 2007 they they therefore moved us into their main slot which was nine o'clock on on uh on wednesday night and then it really took off and we were rating Huge amounts, like one and a half million, 1.7, 1.8 million per week. And it was right at that moment that, and, and the, when the audience was really coming on board that the APEC, uh, the APEC conference came along. It was right after a break. We had a break of four weeks. We went, we didn't take the break, but we were off air for four weeks. And, the, and there was a lot of speculation in the press about what we were going to do in APEC because we were becoming so well known for all our stunts, we're in the paper all the time. And there's this, and this was the highest security conference, which people were very cynical about at the time. They were extremely cynical about. And, and to be honest, Sydney were pissed, was pissed off about all the, what they saw as unnecessary security and security theatre around APEC. That's a so-called ring of steel around the conference. And so people want to know how we were going to infiltrate it. They, they just assumed we were going to do that. And Honestly, we had no plans to infiltrate it. We didn't want to do that. But people talked about it so much. We said, well, if we don't do it, we're going to let everyone down. It was literally in the paper, on the Sunday paper, there was a front page about Dick Cheney's security, security forces t- telling, having mug, our mugshots and looking out for us on APEC. 
and so, and so in the end, uh, we end up doing something which we didn't think was going to work. We thought it was a bit silly. We didn't even have a, a we didn't have a joke attached to it. It was just a, a hail mary, which was this this limo where we were posing as the as the Canadian. Uh, as the Canadian contingent through with limos, then I would get out once we got through as Osama bin Laden. Well, we didn't think I was going to get through. We thought I was going to do that at the front gate and act all offended that I couldn't get in. But amazingly, they let us get through. And we had nothing to do. We had no plans on getting through because we expected to get turned away at the gate. So all we did was just get out once we got through and just wander around. And but it became a huge news story, a massive, massive news story, and so we had to run it. And uh, also, we got arrested and was in jail for for about twelve hours, which made it hard to make the show that week because it was, yeah, mobile phone cameras were everywhere. That people people were camped outside the ABC. It was extremely hard to get outside the ABC to make anything. So we figured well, we had to use half our show on APEC because we got nothing else. And so we thought it was crap, but. People loved it. <laughs> and and I'll tell you, that, that episode, that really rated. It was like 2.2 million. It was the, we're never going to see rains like that again, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that one seems to have prevailed in, in researching this because The Chaser was a little bit before my time, but mm. that's always the one that comes up. Mm. And, yeah, they're always talking about how you ended up in the red zone where the snipers mm. were and how it became this massive deal. Mm. I do want to talk about the demise of The Chaser in a few mm. minutes' time, but first let's lighten the mood a little bit <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> with a song. What would you like to play next? I'd like to play the song which was I heard non-stop during the height of The Chaser because it was my ringtone. It was No Tomorrow by Orson. Orson, the song was called No Tomorrow, and you heard it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull, and I'm joined by Chaz Lichardello of The Chaser. Just before, we were talking about The Chaser and how what goes up must come down. Let's talk about the demise of the program. It starts with the commencement of the third season. What went wrong? Well, look, we, we knew season three was going to be tough. We, we took a year off before season three because we didn't want to make season three because we knew after the non-stop hype of season two there were going to be a bunch of people with baseball bats waiting for us if, if we came back with season three. So we thought, just for once, don't be the people who go on too long. Why not end it early, just for once, and just completely reinvent yourselves with different shows, surprise everyone. Problem was there were six of us and we all had different ideas of what we wanted to make and so we couldn't agree. We spent the whole of 2008 trying to come up with ideas. We came up with hundreds of ideas for TV shows. Some of them were great ideas, in my view, but not all six people agreed on any of them. So we ended up going back against our best best judgment for season three. This time we filmed most of it in America because we figured, well, if they're gonna, if, as long as we as long as we make fun of Americans, they'll be less likely to have a go at us <laughs> because everyone likes making fun of Americans. <laughs> but um. Didn't work out. And so from the moment we came back, first episode, the, te- the tone of the coverage of us was completely different. It was way more negative. It was definitely people looking to take us down. 
and we knew it was coming. And then in, in episode two, it came. It was the Make-A-Wish sketch, which you know, when you look at it now, you probably don't think it's a big deal. And I don't think it was a big deal either. It was a bit of black humour. There were at least three other sketches in the same episode that were that we actually thought were likely to blow up because we knew something was going to blow up. Um, and we were, we were arguing edit suite, which one's going to blow up? We didn't even think of the Make-A-Wish sketch, but that was the one that did blow up for whatever reason. And talkback were all over us. It was literally the first question asked of the Prime Minister in his press conference the next day. It was just ridiculous amounts of coverage. And we ended up getting suspended for two weeks, which was the best thing the ABC could have done because A... We couldn't make the show because the frenetic coverage of us just wouldn't allow us to film anything outside. Um, and secondly, we needed a break because it was just relentless. And the, the amount of attacks, physical attacks, we were sustaining. I had people taking swings at me in the street. We had people outside of houses. It was, it was pretty hectic. Uh, and uh, also the ABC needed to, needed to be seen to punish us because people were looking for blood. We were lucky we weren't sacked on the spot. For anyone who hasn't seen it, can you please describe this Make-A-Wish sketch you're talking about that caused so much offence? Essentially, the joke was that this was a make-a-realistic-wish because these kids all vote, these kids all wish to go to Disneyland and, they, they, and to meet Tom Cruise or whatever. And in reality, it's very hard to, to afford to send kids to Disneyland and to, to get some celebrity to meet them. Why, why don't you ask for something more realistic, like a stick? Yeah, you know, I said that was that was the joke. Like the, you provide them with, with with lame stuff, which is much easier to provide. And who cares? They're going to die anyway. That was that was the, that was the joke. It was, it was obviously not serious. It was obviously being intentionally. The, the joke was we were being over the top callous, right? That was the joke. That was the black humour. But uh, and yeah, and some people got it. Certainly, there are a bunch of sick kids who got it who send us messages of support, but. Lots of people did not get it. And to be honest, I actually think in hindsight, we could have worded it better. Like when, when you're in slightly dodgy areas when it comes to taste, you need to be very careful with your wording. And I thought that our wording, our wording of the joke was not ideal. Having said that, they were coming for us anyway. If it wasn't that, it would have been some other sketch. It, we were due. There was no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you, you started season three of The Chaser War and everything with a target on your back almost. Mm. You make a controversial sketch. Everyone's angry. You have the two weeks off. Mm. Coming back from those two weeks, it must have almost felt like you were in a car crash. Anyway, what's it like to, you know, proceed with the rest of the season knowing how the public feels about you and how you're being received? It was horrible. Like, we just wanted to end as soon as possible because at by that time, when the floodgates opened, we were just being criticised for everything, for everything. And not just from the right, from, from, from our support base as well, from everyone. People, it was in the third season, people started saying, why are they all men? Why, why are they always going out to secretaries for? Why, why, why are there so many Asian people who can't speak English popping up in these, in, in these stunts? And the reason for that is because we're at the ABC, which is next to Chinatown. So when you go and film out the, out the back, there's a lot of Asian people there. But the, but the, the fact is, I mean, and I'm not saying these criticisms, criticisms aren't valid either. I'm just saying that we didn't get them until the third series. And then all of a sudden the floodgates were open. They were all happening at the same time. And just whatever we, we'd either get criticised for being too soft or for being too nasty or for being too this or for being too that. We just, there was just no pleasing anyone. And we knew that all we, all we could do was go away. 
that's all we could do. And we just, and we couldn't, so we still had six more episodes. And so we just, we just kept on going and going and going and just, just, just made our way through it. Let's talk about later years. It sounds horrendous, the last <laughs> couple of <laughs> weeks of The Chaser and the demise of that program. But like a phoenix, you emerge from the flames eventually. What form did that emergence take? What did you make after The Chaser? Well, they, they, to be honest, the demise went for a lot longer than one year. It went for, in my view, it went until the axing of the checkout, which was 2017 or 2018. It was, it was a probably like, because when you're, when you're up really high, it takes a while, yeah? And it, it, it was about eight years of demise. But the, to answer your question, first of all, we made, the show I'm actually proudest of out of anything we made, which was The Hamster Wheel, which was a media critique show. It was the first time we actually really try to do information and remember I wanted to do information as well as entertainment and so we're kind of doing semi-journalism with some of this stuff in and, and media criticism with um the hamster wheel and so I, I really was really proud of that the work that we did that went for three years it didn't rate as high as the war and everything but it went, went okay people, people forget it now because it was in the shadow of the war and everything then after that, we made a terrible show called The Media Circus, which is the less said about that, the better. That went, that went for two years. We were actually trying to do something completely different. It's one of those ones where you try and be very ambitious and you fall so far short that no one can even see what you were trying to do. But yeah, you reach for the stars. <laughs> um, and then, so that was two years. And then while that was happening, the checkout was going on. And the checkout was quite successful on its own right, but it lasted too long and it became a bit repetitive and ended up getting axed. And at that point in time, that was the first time we'd ever been axed. And the ratings had been slowly dropping over that eight-year period. Yes, they dropped across the board, but they dropped on our shows more than other shows. So by the time we get to 2018, we are a low-rating group that is getting axed and is a bunch of middle-aged white males in a time when... No one wants a bunch of low-rating middle-aged white males. So, so that was kind of that, that. That was kind of the nadir, if you will. The other show, of course, which I was making during this period, because I could see it coming. I could see it coming from miles off, and then so I was, I was doing the reinvention at the same time. Was Planned America, which was during the hamster wheel. I thought to myself, I became very interested in journalism. I'd al- I was already interested in journalism, but I particularly became interested in journalism during this, and I thought. I can see the situation journalism is in. Like, as we were critiquing them so heavily. And I suddenly realised one day that the people we were critiquing were all younger than me. And I was 33. And a lot of them weren't qualified for their job. And they were talking about things they didn't understand. And they had no specialties. And they were just sent out to research a really complicated story in like an hour and then come back with a report. And it had to be entertaining. And it had to it had to get ratings, and it had to and and it, and it couldn't it couldn't make uh, the Australian angry, and like there were all things there were all these requirements that weren't journalism requirements, and these people were totally unqualified to do it. And I and I thought, hang on, we're part of the problem. They're scared of us criticizing them. Why don't we try and rather than just be assholes for once? Why don't we try and provide a solution? I want to put a pin in that. Yeah, sure that direction that you've taken mm. from, yeah, being a part of the problem and mm. critiquing the problem to forming a solution. Mm. That's coming up mm. on Out of the Box, but first we're going to a song by the Gaslight Anthem. What have you chosen? I've chosen Great Expectations because it, this was the song that I was listening to the most when I was in my funk after the third series of The, the Chases War and Everything. I was just basically couldn't get out of bed for four months. I listened to this song on repeat 
And now you can too. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This is the Gaslight Anthem and Great Expectations. Are listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming on the website this show is out of the box. My name is Mia Hull. I'm joined by Chaz Lichardello of The Chaser. We were just talking before about the demise of The Chaser and a program made thereafter where Chaz identified problems in the media and instead of being part of the problem chose to be part of the solution. Let's talk about that. What does being part of the solution look like? Well, I figured that, uh, as well as identifying that, that, they, that the journalists at the time were facing enormous challenges, uh, unfair challenges, that they could not be expect, expected to produce anything but shit in response to. On top of that, the driving force was that there, was, there were pl- plenty of people in journalism that really cared about news, but they just didn't have the resources or the uh, incentives to be able to produce it. Um, and so they, they were forced to produce something that was sub-news. And so I thought, maybe if we can design a show where you can cover news in a different way to what, how it's currently covered, in an intelligent way, but still is very watchable and still uh, you know, it could potentially rate well, then that will provide a model that other people can copy. I don't because that's why TV works. TV works by people building on what other people do. I don't expect if we nail it. I didn't expect there to be clones of that show, but I expect the people to take bits and pieces from it and then and then apply it to their shows. And therefore, maybe that's a way forward for news. That's how you become part of the solution by providing a model that people can borrow from, like a bowerbird. So. I, so that's when I started Planet America. And the reason it was Planet America was because I just so happened to have been obsessed with American politics for decades. It just happened to be something I'd never talked about on our show, but on any of our shows, but that I was just secretly this massive expert on because I had just been reading obsessively about American politics since the internet was around. So I figured, you know, one of the biggest problems with news as it stands is there are no specialties anymore. That you, that a TV journalist doesn't have a specialty. I have a specialty. Why don't I show them how you can make that specialty work on a specialty news show? And so we started at Planet America and I wasn't trying to out of the box, just so to speak, try, try out of the box make this perfect news show. I was trying to just make any news show and just see what the problems are. Because I figured I was modest enough to realise that as much as I thought I knew all the problems, I probably did not know all the problems. So I just wanted to learn what the problems were for a few years. That was the idea. It's almost like the the three-in-one, you know, you're improving our understanding of discourse, you're reinventing yourself, you're (laughs) getting into your passion, which is American politics. What, what does that show look like to someone who might not have seen that before? It's essentially a... It's a, it's a news 
magazine show, so it's it it's it's like it's just us at the desk talking about the news. But it the the main thing it tries to achieve is analysis through the use of data rather than speculation. That's essentially what it tries to do. Like we we have we got we're two part. There's John Barron, who is a real journalist as opposed to me, who does a very potted summary of the story, the basics, without any attitude. And then I'll come in and I'll just, just dump as much data and graphics and analysis as I possibly can in the shortest period of time, but in a way that hopefully is illuminating and entertaining. And then we'll chat around, chat around it a bit <clears throat> and uh, make it a little bit easier to watch. I want to talk about the data mm. side of it as well and the graphic side of it too, because at the top of the show we were talking about your job at the Eastern Herald, yes. the newspaper, and how you chose not to cash your checks yes. because you cared about the newspaper. Mm. That's kind of carried through into this as well because the graphics and the data, which would normally be kind of difficult to understand just looking at the numbers, you've funded the infographics for that out of your own pocket, didn't you? Yes, that's true. In 2017, the ABC, it's fair to say, didn't see the same potential for this show that I did, even though I was extremely aware that it would all pay off in, in 2020. Um, they, did, they were not so sure of that. Uh, and they were prepared to put up with us, to tolerate us, because you know, this was on News 24, which no, nothing rated well on News 24. So we were, we were an, an effectively high-rating show, but not high rating enough for them to fund us properly and so they just didn't have the budget so I just thought you know what I'm just going to pay for it myself and so I paid $1,300 a week out of my $1,000 a week wage which if you do the maths means I was paying $300 a week to make the show in 2017 uh, but it worked it worked and it and it rated even better and then they got more interested in it and then in 2018 they found the money at the top of the show, I should have introduced you as, you know, writer, comedian, member of the Chaser, philanthropist. Let's <laughs> um, not go too far. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really amazing direction that you've you've taken things from being the stunt guy in the Chaser to bringing your understanding of news media and the issues with the media to being the solution. What does the future look like for you, Chaz? Well... One thing I'm certain about is I'm not going to stay in the same thing for too long. I, I, I think that you only get one life and you get as many shots. You should try and cram as many shots as you can into that one life. Also, I'm not getting any younger. So I've maybe got, I don't know, I, especially the rate I work. I work at a ridiculous uh, level in terms of lack of sleep and all the rest. I'm just obsessive like that. So I, I'd be lucky to maybe cram in 10 or 15 more years before I'm completely washed up. So I want to use that, that period to do as many different things as possible. So my plan, whether it comes out or not, we'll see. You can only make the plans. My plan is to next year start another show, move into a different direction, bring Play America back for 2024 because people want us to and also I want to fine-tune that model a little bit more. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, and then, then after 2024, try and do another show as well. I, there's a few more directions I want to move in. There's a few things, that, a few areas which I feel are underserviced, which I don't want to give anyone any clues by saying them out in public. But, uh, the, uh, but I feel like there are other areas I can push in where... I, I think with TV, you can only stay in one place for, for a certain amount of time before the people you influence replace you. And if you fight it, you lose. 
because those people will be better than you because they learnt from you. And then they'll apply their own, their own personality, their own element on top of that. So never stay long enough to have to compete against your, your progeny, I say. <laughs> and, so, and so there are other areas where I'm going to move in and try and uh, chase other people <laughs> again, so to speak. <laughs> So I guess the takeaway is watch this space Yes. then. Thanks so much for <laughs> jumping on the show today, Chaz. It was great talking to you. No worries, mate. Anytime. What song would you like to finish on? I'd like to finish with the ultimate recovery song for the recovery years. Hopefully these are recovery years. And that is Churches Recover. We'll dive into that one right now on FBI. It's Churches and Recover. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do so on our programs page at fbiradio.com and on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to producer Glenn for doing the research for this episode and stay tuned. Brie Kennedy is up next for lunch. And if I recover, will you be my comfort?